The Lord be with you. Good morning and welcome to IPC Zurich. This is the day the Lord has made and we here this morning, what are we going to do? We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Yes. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're very glad you've joined us. We pray this morning that this worship service for you and for all of us would be an encounter with the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please join me now in prayer as we prepare our hearts for worship. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, you are always more ready to give your good gifts than we are to seek them. You are willing to give more than we desire or deserve. So help us this morning so to seek that we may truly find, so to ask that we may joyfully receive, and so to knock that the door of your mercy may be open to us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Today's Old Testament reading comes from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 15, and can be found on page 925 of the Church Bibles. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people, Israel, back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Today's New Testament reading comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and can be found on pages 1064 to 1065 of the Church Bibles. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, 
and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Over the past few weeks, uh, since it was Epiphany, I guess, Nathan and I have been preaching on the early ministry and early life of Jesus. And today we end that series with this sermon on John chapter 2 and the, the wedding at Cana. So I don't really know yet what weddings are like in Switzerland, but in the United States, they can be pretty crazy events, crazy events with a lot of moving parts, you might say. And therefore, since they have so many moving parts, they are ripe for disaster. I'm happy to say, though, that by God's grace as a pastor, I have thankfully not officiated at any weddings where disaster has struck. I'm probably jinxing myself with that. But um, so far, no fainting bridesmaids. That's something that happens in the States. Uh, the people that stand up there in the front go over them. Uh, no brawling groomsmen. That's actually a thing, believe it or not. Groomsmen get into fist fights. Uh, no power outages, tornado warnings, uh, no food, food poisonings or flu outbreaks before the wedding. Uh, there was a COVID outbreak after one of the weddings I did. Uh, the wedding party, myself, virtually everyone who attended got COVID. But um, that's another story for another time. And uh, also, if you've ever been to a wedding in the States, this was kind of a thing 10, 15 years ago. The bride and groom would cut the cake and then they'd each take a piece and then they'd feed each other uh, the first bite of the wedding cake. But it kind of became in vogue at some point to smush the cake into the partner's face. Uh, and then sometimes fights broke out about that. So I think most of you are saying, what's going on with weddings in the United States? Uh, Anyways, that happens sometimes, but never happened to me, no disasters. Probably the worst disaster, worst thing that ever happened at a wedding I officiated was something I did, not anything else uh, someone else did. Once when I uh, married a very dear young couple from the congregation, after pronouncing them husband and wife, I forgot to invite them to kiss each other. <laughs> That's the custom in the United States. I forgot, I, I blew it, it was on the next page of my notes. And then afterwards, the mother of the bride came to me and said, what's going on? You didn't ask him to kiss. But okay, I trust, I trust they've made up for it since. Okay. okay, so I'm sure some of you have your own wedding incident or accident stories to tell. And that's perhaps due, again, to the nature of weddings. Weddings sometimes just seem to invite disaster, probably because, as I said, there's just so many moving parts to them and, and so much can go wrong. If I'm not mistaken, it's the probability of the union of events that comes into play here. And boy, can the fallout from this probabilistic model wreak havoc on a wedding day. So, in the wedding story we just read from the book of John, here too, something goes wrong. And we might even call what goes wrong here in this wedding a disaster. This is the situation. Jesus and his mother and his disciples are at a wedding. And bad news, terrible news, the wine has run out. There's no more wine for the guests. And that's a problem. 
a possible disaster even. And let me explain why. Weddings in Bible times, as some of you are used to in your own countries, weddings in Bible times sometimes were multi-day affairs, sometimes week-long affairs. And they were multi-day, week-long affairs with wine. You might say that in some cases, wine fueled these week-long celebrations. So, for the host of the wedding party to run out of wine was a very bad thing, a very bad thing indeed. But lack of fuel for the celebration was not the only problem, actually. Running out of wine would not have been interpreted as a, a good sign or a good omen for that married couple's life together. It would have been understood, in fact, as a bad omen, bad luck, if you will. And people would have taken note. Not good. But even worse than that, even worse than that, running out of wine would have been interpreted as a sure sign of the groom's parents' cheapness and lack of hospitality. In those days and in that place, it was the groom's family, apparently, that picked up the tab for the wedding reception or the wedding celebration. And so for them to have run out of wine would have exposed them to charges of skimping on the wedding festivities by cutting corners on the catering. And to be seen as cheap with your invited guests would have been to bring great dishonor upon your name, upon your reputation, upon yourself. You would have been disgraced in that day and place if word had gotten out that you had skimped on your wedding guests. So what we have here then is actually a serious situation for those hosting the party. Their honor is at stake. Their reputations are at stake. Something has to be done. Well, we don't know all the details, but somehow Mary, the mother of Jesus, is involved in all this. She may have been part of the groom's family and then, for that reason, partly responsible for the catering arrangements. But whatever the case, it's clear from what she says that she feels she needs to do something about this problem. So she tells Jesus of the problem, saying, they have no more wine. And clearly there, she's expecting him to do something about it. It's not a public service announcement that she's making here, right? She wants action. Now, most Bible scholars I read on the subject don't believe that Mary, what Mary had in mind was a miracle. She wasn't thinking, oh, I want my son to perform a miracle here. No, she just views Jesus as a very capable person, a remarkable person. And so she's asking him for a bit of help here in this situation as the honor of the family, maybe her own honor in this case, uh, was at stake. Jesus, though, replies pretty coolly to her request. This is what he says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. The flavor of those initial words, especially his use of the word woman to address his mother. The flavor of these words is hard for us to get a sense of, I think, as the original Greek words really possess no equivalent in the English language. Let me just say, though, that for Jesus to call his mother woman here was not exactly rude, but on the other hand, it wasn't like he was saying mommy dearest or mother dearest. 
What his calling her woman here represents or suggests, probably more than anything, is, is simple positioning. Positioning. Jesus is making it clear to Mary here that he is not speaking to her from the position of her dutiful son, but from his position of her divine Lord. What he's telling her here is that his lordship is his primary identity and chief function, not his sonship. And what he expresses here in the next phrase when he says, my time has not yet come or my hour has not yet come, this totally fits with this perspective. What he's expressing here with this statement that his time is, yet to, is not yet come is that no human is going to determine his timing on anything. No, what he does and when he does it will be in keeping with his father's will for him. No one else's. Whatever needs to be done will be done according to God's will, not their will, not Mary's will, nor any other human being's will. Only God's going to be calling the shots here. In a way, I guess what we could say is that what Jesus is doing here is a form of individuation, divine individuation. This idea of individuation, maybe you've heard about it before, but let me just explain it in this way. Children, throughout all their childhoods, uh, they seek to become their own individuals. They try to, to define their own selves, right? As they're growing up, they seek more independence and they try to exert more of their wills. And this is normal and it's natural and it's necessary. It starts with that one year, uh, starting to feed yourself. Um, maybe at eight, making your own breakfast. You're, it's really not hard in Switzerland, just the muesli thing, but anyway. Uh, a teenager chooses their own clothes, perhaps. Uh, a young adult gets their hair cut in the way they want or colored in the way they want. Uh, in these acts, children are establishing themselves as individuals. They're creating for themselves an identity, and this is the key here, separate from their parents, an identity separate from their parents. They're, commuting, they're communicating to the world who they are in their own right. How's that going for you guys if you have families? <laughs> it's not always that easy. And in a way, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's establishing himself as a unique individual, creating for himself an identity now as he matures in his ministry that is separate from his family. And in the next scene, we see this even more so. Mary seems to comprehend. She gets it here, she, the meaning of his statement to her. And then she yields to his authority. Do whatever he tells you, Mary then says. You see that? Jesus has established himself as his own person. She, she gets it. Mary gets it. She understands that while she might be his mother, ultimately what's important is that he is her Lord. So on to the miracle now. The miracle itself is pretty simple, actually. Jesus tells his servants to fill six stone jars with water, some water is drawn out of the jars and brought to the master of ceremonies. When the liquid is brought to him, quite incredibly, what the master of ceremonies tastes is no longer water, but wine. A very good wine, in fact. 
The master of ceremonies comments that is much better than the wine they had been drinking before. Uh, the wine they had been drinking before tasted perhaps a bit like the, the kind of wines you, you find in the, 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 the bottom shelf of your supermarket, right? And the wine they were now drinking that Jesus had done the miracle with, this is kind of the, the top shelf stuff. What has happened now is that in just a few short moments, the water in those stone jars, some 450 liters, it's thought, 450 liters of wine has been changed by Jesus into this very excellent wine. And the guests then are now free to enjoy the rest of the wedding week with plenty of excellent wine. And the host's honor is saved. So that's the story, the story of the wedding at Cana. And the author of the story, John, the disciple of Jesus, he ends it by saying this. And this is instructive. This was the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So the story of Jesus turning water into wine is remarkable in its own right. A miracle by definition is a pretty remarkable thing after all, right? It's not an everyday event. But what Jesus does here. It's amazing, it's stunning, even shocking. But what it symbolizes, what it symbolizes is maybe even bigger yet. What it symbolizes for his ministry and his mission. This is where it really gets interesting in this miracle. Because in what it symbolizes, we see Jesus for who he is and for what he has come to do. Let me explain. So, by turning water into wine, Jesus, first of all, so it's the first of three things, Jesus, first of all, shows who he really is. Clearly, he's no ordinary man. Clearly, he is no regular human being. What he does is out of this world. Who he is is out of this world. This miracle points to the fact that Jesus is divine, that he is God. Now, Here's the interesting thing about miracles. Miracles are totally unbelievable unless you're a believer, right? Think about that. Miracles are totally unbelievable unless you're a believer. I've read many explanations of this miracle and other miracles, explanations seeking to demythologize them or explain them away. And in the end, the premise undergirding all these explanations is pretty much the same. In the end, the explanation or the assumption is that the miracle could not have happened because the laws of nature don't allow for such a thing to happen. And therefore, it couldn't have happened. Well, I have to say, in some respects, I'm actually sympathetic to this point of view. Any reasonable person must admit, after all, that water doesn't just turn into wine. Would that it did, right? It doesn't. So I agree with that sentiment in a sense, in a sense, wait for it, 100%. This is not the way the universe works. It's not the way our universe works. For this reason, an event like this doesn't stand up to reason. It doesn't stand up to rationality. It doesn't stand up to science, good science at least. 
But now here's the key to all of this. I believe, as all believers do, that in this universe there is actually something beyond reason, beyond rationality, beyond science. Something beyond what I can see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or otherwise sense. Something beyond what I can calculate, measure, or observe. Something beyond what I can prove, demonstrate, or substantiate. I believe there is the supernatural. I believe there is the divine. I believe there is a God. And I believe that this God can act outside the laws of nature because he created these laws of nature. I believe he can act above and beyond these laws of nature because he's above and beyond this universe. But to believe this, of course, requires faith, doesn't it? It requires faith. And this actually has been recognized by believers for quite some time. Uh, perhaps I've mentioned him before from this pulpit uh, in our discussions of faith. The 11th century, I guess you call him theologian, Anselm of Canterbury, right? Anselm tells God that he does not seek to understand so that then he may believe, but rather he seeks to believe so that he might understand. In other words, what Anselm is saying is that understanding God, totally understanding God, is not a prerequisite to faith. But actually faith is a prerequisite to understanding God. And so when, what Anselm wants from God, first of all, is faith. Faith with which then he can understand. Faith by which he can understand who God is and, and how he interacts with this world and, and its inhabitants. Faith so he can understand himself. Uh, he can understand others around him. Faith so he can understand how God interacts with this world and what he does with it. So faith precedes understanding. And this pattern we see actually in the story of Cana, the wedding at Cana. Note that at the end of the story here, we see no comment from John about the other guests or the servants or anyone else at the wedding coming to faith because of what they have seen. We see the disciples actually, those who had already been called, whom he had already drawn to himself, whom he had already revealed his true self to. We see them professing and possessing faith in response to this miracle. And this is because the miracle performed by Jesus at Cana was a significant sign only for those whose hearts God had already transformed. And that is in the disciples' hearts. For them, what happened was huge. For them, this miracle was a sign that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and he was now living among them. For them, this was a sign from God that he was God. Because they had faith, and only because they had faith, could they understand what this miracle was all about. The rational mind would have dismissed it. The mind that had been transformed by faith could embrace it. 
the turning of water into wine was not only a sign of Jesus as God. Secondly, it was a sign of God's new deal for his people. This is the second or third things. If we look back at the Old Testament, if we look back to the book of Leviticus in particular, we see that God's people back then, the people of ancient Israel, they purified themselves before God by washing themselves with water found in stone jars. Stone jars exactly like Jesus used in this miracle. The people of Israel, for example, had to do this ritual washing with water before they entered the temple. They had to be purified by the water before they could approach the presence of God. So now again, I think this is where it gets pretty interesting. As we know, Jesus used those same stone jars, water in stone jars, used for purification purposes to perform his miracle. Those jars that were sitting outside, again, they were for ritual washing. And Jesus, he turned water from those stone jars into wine. So, thought experiment here. Might Jesus be sending the message here by using those very same stone jars and that very same water? Might he be sending the message here that that things have changed with respect to how God's people are purified before him. So we don't have communion today. We'll have it tonight at the other service. But I think most of us have a sense of what wine stands for in a communion service, in our celebration of communion or the Lord's Supper. Wine stands for what? It stands for the blood of Christ, right? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ that purifies us, we read in Hebrews 9, the blood of Christ that purifies us from all sins. All right, so stick with me here. So this new deal, this new agreement, this new covenant between God and his people. In this new covenant, purity before God is not about water from a stone jar. It is about blood from a sacrificed Savior. Right? The water turned into wine. The water turned into the sign of Christ's blood. This new covenant is not about our constant acts of righteousness. It's about Jesus once and for all act of sacrifice. It's the blood, not the water anymore. This new covenant, it's not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. This new covenant, it's not about the ritual water. It's about the real blood. It's not about works. It's about faith. It's pretty amazing symbolism here. It's not the water anymore, folks. It's the wine. It's the blood. So much more great symbolism, beautiful symbolism in this miracle. Let me just mention one more thing. One more thing, a third thing that we find symbolized here. Uh, think back to what Bemi read from the book of Amos this morning. The prophet Amos, he, he gives God's people a, a vision of their future. A vision which everything is as it should be. Perfect in every way. It's a vision of paradise, you might say. This is from Amos. 
And, and the metaphor, which is heavily drawn upon for the nature of this perfect age, is the metaphor of abundant wine. Tons of wine. Wine flowing. When Amos wants to communicate how great this future day is going to be for God's people, when the heaven and earth are restored and all in this world is as it should be, he describes it in terms of a day in which, and I quote the passage now, the people will plant vineyards and drink their wine. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Might Jesus' miracle with the wine here be a sign that this day has now, at least in some of its initial stages, arrived? Might Jesus producing the equivalent of 307 bottles of highly desirable wine for this wedding party of probably no more than 100 people, might this not symbolize the start of God's, God's lavish provision for his people? A provision that began at this wedding feast in Cana, but won't really be complete until he comes again? I think so. I think it's a sign, it's one that signifies what he has already given us and what he has yet in store for us. And now too, we've been given this sign through the prophet Amos and also through the Gospel of John. Jesus, of course, has not come here and changed our drinking fountains into wine spigots or turned our bottled water into bottles of wine. But he's shown us in this reading today, in this miracle at Cana, of what is to come, the abundant that is to come, the goodness that is to come for those who by grace and through faith belong to him. His provision will be lavish for those he calls his own. Let me close by asking this. How do we now respond to these signs? What should our response be to this revelation given by Jesus through the water and the wine? Well, I think first we should acknowledge and embrace by faith who Jesus is, right? That was perhaps the primary sign or the primary motivation behind this miracle. We need to go beyond reason, beyond what science dictates, and take a leap of faith to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, do I understand what this means? All of what this means? No. I don't understand all of who God is and what he's all about. But I'm learning, and through faith I'm learning. And through faith we all can learn. I think sometimes it's very, it's very possible and easy for us to be paralyzed in our faith life by what we do not understand, right? There's so much, perhaps, about God and the way he interacts with this world and the way he interacts uh, with us that is difficult for us to comprehend. There's perhaps much about our God and what he does, or often it's the case, what he doesn't do, that's difficult for us to reconcile with what he's told us about himself. For example, he's told us he's a loving God, full of compassion, and yet we suffer, right? How, how do those things fit? It's perhaps much about God and his relationship, we just, relationship to us. We just don't understand. 
But that's okay. That's okay. God is God and we are not. And as we grow closer to him by faith, we will understand more. Not everything, of course, but more. And where we don't, well, that's where we simply, again, rely on faith. As Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, we live by faith, not by sight, right? Second, I think we need to respond to the sign by understanding the nature of God's grace. God's love and acceptance of us is not ultimately about what we do or don't do. His salvation is not given based on who we are or what we have done. It's not about how clean we have lived or are currently living. It's not about the purity that we have achieved through, say, ritual or tradition or religious acts or good deeds. No, his salvation is based on the blood. Again, we go back to the blood. It's not about where we stand on this issue or that issue. It's not based on the percentage of income we give uh, or the worst number of worship services we've attended. It's not based on whether our theology is 95% correct or 98% correct. It's not based on how many Bible studies we've attended or how many scripture verses we've memorized. Purity before God is not about water anymore. It's about blood. It's about the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ shed for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. That's what we say in our communion service. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, it doesn't mean that those things I've just mentioned are unimportant. No, they're important, many of them at least. They're just not ultimately what purifies us before God. Finally, we respond to this sign with a confidence and a trust that the Son of God who filled those partygoers' cups to the brim and probably far beyond, he has started pouring into our glasses as well. And some days, and someday, these glasses are gonna over, these cups are gonna overflow for us too. Already, of course, we taste God's goodness, don't we? We taste his goodness both in the ordinary ways and in the extraordinary ways he provides for us. But the lavishness or the, the sweetness of his provision notwithstanding, there, of course, is a lot of bitterness still in our lives, isn't there? You might say there remains a lot of vinegar in our cups. The pain that many of us suffer in our daily lives is immense. I hear your stories. There's pain in this place. We struggle with grief over the death of a loved one and with fear over the potential death of a loved one. We struggle with aging and loneliness, peer pressure and family tensions. Uh, we struggle with loveless marriages, unfulfilling jobs, overwhelming workloads, unhealthy relationships. We struggle with disappointment and frustration, failure and rejection. We struggle with chronic diseases, destructive diseases, debilitating diseases, terminal diseases. 
We struggle with addictions and compulsions, depression and schizophrenia, with all sorts of mental illnesses and, and emotional deregulations or dysregulations. Some of us, we struggle with bad grades. Not many of us, but maybe some of us. Bad breakups. Deep guilt, huge regret. We struggle with only God knows what. And I mean that literally. I'm not just saying that. No, God does know what. Only God knows. But someday our cups, someday in our cups, this world's awful vinegar will be replaced by God's most excellent wine. The power of God's goodness will completely conquer the pain of this world. When Christ comes again, for those who are in him, this day will be a day like no other. It will be the biggest and best wedding feast this world has ever seen. And I can guarantee you that this wedding feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb, as it's sometimes called, uh, the wedding feast at which the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is united with his people, I can guarantee that this wedding will be all it should be. At this wedding, there will be no accidents, there will be no incidents, there will be no more problems, no disasters. All will be as it should be at this wedding. There will be only love and joy, peace and justice, health and wholeness. The wedding feast at Cana, a revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A declaration of salvation through his blood and an indication of the wedding feast of the Lamb to come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and his miracles, you have shown us who he is and what he is all about. So we pray this morning that you would give us by your Holy Spirit the power to respond in faith, in love, and in hope. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. Go into the world this week knowing that the one who had the power to turn water into wine has the power to turn sadness into joy, sickness into health, trouble and turmoil into peace, disbelief and unbelief into faith and even death into life. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and remain with you always. Amen.